millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, ahoy, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to the international best-selling author, Ruth Ware. Ruth has just published her seventh novel, the psychological crime thriller. It's called The It Girl. Now, we talk about why she doesn't write serials, tapping into the same character over and over again, although she thinks that might help getting ideas sometimes. Also, how she knew when to go full-time and why word count targets don't really work for her. I think it would make me concentrate on the wrong things, which would be just churning out words, whereas actually... I think you can have had as good a day writing if you've deleted 500 words of rubbish as if you've written 500 words of brilliant prose. You know, one is more depressing than the other, obviously. But um, I would say I probably end up writing sort of normally about a couple of thousand words a day. It's all on the way with Ruth Ware in a brand new writer's routine. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for bearing with me for just a week's absence. I think we should be pretty much continual right now through till Christmas. All being well, fingers crossed. This is the place where we take a look through an author's working day. We see how they get ideas, how they plan that idea out, how they plan their space and their time to give them the best chance of getting that idea out. Now this week, we're with the international best-selling author, Ruth Ware. She started out writing young adult fiction and now has moved into crime and psychological thriller. She is a Sunday Times bestseller. Her books, The Lion Game, The Woman in Cabin 10, In a Dark Dark Wood, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, The Turn of the Key and One by One have all done very well. It's helped her go full time. Now, we talk about that decision why she made it, how she dealt with it, suddenly having all of this free time to do something. She used to cram around the day job. How did that go for her? Were there any road bumps along the way? Her new book is called The It Girl. It's all about April, a vivacious, bright girl at Oxford University. She is the ultimate It Girl. And Hannah and Will, who soon fall into her dazzling orbit until six months later, when April is found dead. Someone is locked away for the crime, partially on Hannah's testimony. But then a decade after that, when Hannah and Will are expecting, 
A journalist comes along with new information about April's death, which throws everything off kilter, and it could change Hannah's world and her relationship with her mates forever. We talk about why her writing space is almost perfect, uh, also how her lack of physical planning lets her know when an idea isn't actually worth remembering at all. Uh, You can hear why knowing the 30,000 word mark is a struggle for everyone and how that can really help you out, and why Avenue's of getting a character to have to investigate a crime is actually one of the toughest bits of writing a whodunit. So that's all on the way. It's a brilliant chat with Ruth Ware. And we pick things up as we always do by having a peek around what Ruth sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. So I always write in my office um, and... That's mainly because when I first started writing, I had small kids, well, a small baby, actually. Um, and I wrote on the sofa, um, kind of curled up with my ba- my sleeping baby in one arm, because that was the only time I could actually write was when, when they were asleep, um, tapping away on my laptop with, uh, you know, with my free hand. Um, and bed or the sofa is still one of my favorite places to write. But unfortunately, after doing that for a couple of years, I completely screwed up my back um, and ended up going to my doctor who said, um, tell me about your desk setup." And this sort of little uh, ding went off over my I was like, desk? Okay, that's a good point. Um, so now I'm really strict about it. I have like a proper desk um, with a, a desktop computer with the screen at the right height and a fancy chair. Um, which was a big investment at the time, but has definitely paid dividends in terms of, you know, not having to go to constant chiropractor appointments and stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm really lucky that I now have my own space for writing, which was a dream for a long time. I was always in the corner of living rooms or, you know, spare bedrooms or whatever. Um, but no, I have my own office. Um, I have a nice big desk with not too much clutter on it. It's um, surrounded by um, built-in bookshelves, which have all of my foreign editions and translations and copies of the proofs that I've been sent to read. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a lovely place to spend the day. I always love chatting to an author who's been able to make like a writing space to spec. Like, as you said, it's something that you've dreamed about for a while. I, I guess, how close is what you've built to what you had always wanted? What were your must haves around you? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty close now. The only thing is it's a really small room. Um, so, I, you know, I've always wanted floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. I love a nice big desk. I hate desks that have drawers behind them. I like to be able to swivel and swoosh up and down and not bang my knees against, you know, some any obstructions. Um, and I have a sofa, which is lovely because I'm able to do, um, you know, podcast recordings. I'm sitting on it now, um, Zoom calls and stuff like that. From from my sofa, and you know, if the writing's going really badly, I have been known to just take my blanket and just curl up on the sofa and be like, "I'm just going to think about this for a while." Um, so I would say, yeah, it's pretty idyllic. Um, if I if I did make a change, it would probably be to um, pull all of the walls out about six inches to just get a little bit more floor space. But that's being picky, really. <laughs> what about the practicalities of it? Uh, you knowing the type of books that you write and you're able to build this space so I, I wonder have you any uh pin boards anywhere whiteboards post-it notes strewn all around the place just to kind of keep you in track of what's happening 
I don't really, which makes me feel like a very bad writer indeed. Um, I have the odd... Um, like I've got a lot of sort of, you know, writing memorabilia up on the walls. My um, American publishers um, always, whenever a book gets onto the New York Times bestseller list, they send me this lovely like framed kind of um, sort of about A3 size and it's got the book cover on one side and then a photocopy of the New York Times chart position on the other side, um, which is just so lovely. So there's lots of those around the walls. There's like framed quotes and stuff there's drawings that friends have given me um uh, but the only thing there's only two kind of really practical things on the walls i've got a little um, <laughs> cut out of postage charges to go to places like you know how much it costs to post a letter to america and how much it costs to post a small parcel because it just saves me googling it every time i post out a book i can just stick on the right number of first class stamps um and then at the moment i've still got up a plan that i drew for the it girl of the college um where hannah and april attend um because actually the layout was quite important to the plot and i was spending a lot of time trying to figure out if they walked from here to there what would they see um so eventually i just drew it all out by hand uh, so that's still pinned up on there even though i've now moved on to the next book but i don't really i mean i do plot i think about i always know the ending of my books i always know who did it I pretty much know like two or three kind of what I think of as like set pieces, um, you know, like the big scenes that I'm looking forward to writing. I usually know a couple of those before I start, but I don't really write any of it down. I sort of keep it in my head, which I think enables me to keep a bit more fluid. It enables me to sort of change things and it all feels just a little bit more organic. Whereas if I start to write stuff down, I sort of feel like once I've committed it to paper, I can't change it. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing, you know, in terms of if I've decided what a character's eye colour is or date of birth and that's important to the plot, then I will write a line at the bottom of the manuscript just to remind myself of key dates. But it will literally be a paragraph and everything else I keep in the back of my head, um, basically on the assumption that it's a kind of, it's a, a natural sort of triage system. You know, I feel if an idea is good, I will retain it. And if I forget something, it's probably because it wasn't a very compelling idea in the first place. <laughs> so yeah, so there's no, there's no whiteboards, there's no post-it notes, there's no plotting. It's all just in the back of my head or very occasionally like one line at the bottom of the manuscript saying something like, remember to add wedding ring or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me just take you back to the drawing that you've got of the college that the girls go to. How, um, is that something consistent through your books? Is there always maybe one thing that just kind of keeps you in check, a map? And, and how long is this going to still be there before you take it down and perhaps replace it with the next thing? Well, I should probably have taken it down already, but um, the, the part of the reason why it's still up there is because I'm not a very good drawer and I was quite proud of it. So I was like, oh, that looks quite good. Um, uh, it's quite common for me to have like things like, so um, for One by One, which was set in a ski resort, I fairly early on did a map of the resort and a map of the ski runs, um, colour coded in red and, you know, like, like a real um, ski run map for a resort. Because, again, that was a 
big part of the plot, how the, the runs all kind of mapped together and how they navigated their way around the resort after there was an avalanche. So that was up on the wall for one by one. Um, but oftentimes I won't have anything up. I don't think I had anything up for the turn of the key. Um, the layout of the house in that was pretty simple. So it was easy to keep in the back of my head. Um, didn't have anything up for the Lion Game or the Woman in Cabin 10. So it, it's very much, it's usually it's usually maps or plans of houses where I trip up and that's hard to do on the computer because obviously, you know, it's difficult to, you can't draw on a, on a manuscript. Um, so that, that's when I reach for pen and paper, but otherwise yeah, for things like, um, yeah, like dates of birth and stuff, which was a big issue in the lying game because it takes place over the course of a, a school year. Um, and so, people would have had birthdays and things which have had to have been marked. And, you know, that's a big issue when you're sort of 15, like who's older than who, all of that I had at the bottom of the, of the manuscript just kind of added on at a line at the bottom. Um, but yeah, mostly, mostly it's all either in my head or in the computer, which I always think if I, you know, if I fell under a bus tomorrow and Simon and Schuster wanted to get someone to finish my novels, they would have quite a task. I don't leave very much behind me. So, <laughs> Talking about the computer, um, uh, we can get quite niche, maybe a little bit nerdy on the show. What, um, what software are you writing on? And also, what font do you pick? I'm very old school. Um, so I, a lot of my writer friends use sort of fancy software like Scrivener and things. Um, I don't. I use, I'm, I'm so old school. I don't even use Word. I use um, a free shareware program called um, LibreOffice, which is basically like Word used to be in about sort of 2008, I would say. So it's pretty functional. It doesn't have the annoying Microsoft paperclip tapping on your screen all the time. Um, but it's definitely not bells and whistles. Um, and I quite like that. I like the paired back simplicity of it. It's it's sort of as close as you can get to a typewriter without actually it being a typewriter, which for me would be a step too far. I know there are writers who really like that kind of bare bones approach, but I I don't, not least because I, yeah, I think it would give me RSI from tapping the, the keys. Um, so yes, it's very pared back. It's very minimalist. Um, it's very easy to use. Um, you know, it doesn't mess up track changes and all that kind of stuff. Um, I sort of feel like anything else is a bit of a distraction. I'm slightly suspicious of programs that require you to spend more time getting to grips with them than in writing. And then they sort of promise that back in convenience dividends. But I always think, well, you know, why not just spend the time writing instead? So that's my that's my philosophy. Um, yeah. Oh, and I write in, I write in Times New Roman, also the most basic of fonts, uh, 12 point. Um, but controversially, I space it at 1.5. Um, all the writing advice you'll get is to submit in double spacing um, because editors like that so they can make notes. But I find that doesn't look book-like enough on my screen. So 1.5 spacing is my compromise. Well, I'm super lucky that I am now a full-time writer, which was always my dream. And for a long time and many books, I juggled it alongside a day job. Um, so I'm really grateful and feel really privileged now to be able to do it five days a week. Um, but one of the things which I did 
I was sort of strict with myself when I gave up my day job. I did promise that I would treat the re- the writing as as a job um, because I was sort of very aware that it now was my job. Um, and that means that I, I get up in the morning, I sort my kids out for school and then I go up to my office, shut the door. And that's pretty much me for the day. I get my head down. Um, and obviously, you know, I have coffee breaks. I go down and have lunch and answer the door and all that kind of stuff. But I try to treat the working week as if I were working in an office. I don't make coffee dates in the day. I don't, you know, pop out for walks. I don't, yeah, I treat it as if uh, as if I were doing a job in an office and I had a boss watching me. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean I'll be writing all day. In fact, I, I mostly won't be. Um, I spend a lot of time procrastinating, going on social media. If I did have a boss, they would probably have fired me over my Facebook use, let alone my Twitter um, tweeting. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of admin which goes along with being self-employed as I'm sure you know you and anyone listening to this who is self-employed will know you know there's tax returns there's receipts there's VAT returns there's all the just nuts and bolts of of running a a small business basically Um, and that takes up a huge amount of time as well so I'll be at the desk all day doing you know a mix of writing admin and procrastination in probably equal parts. Um, But if the writing's going great, then yeah, I might have my head down from 9am until 3pm when I'll suddenly sort of emerge blinking and realise that, you know, the kids are about to come out of school and I'd need to get a move on and I haven't had any lunch. Um, But that's the exception rather than the rule. I would say in a normal day, I'm probably doing like two or three hours of writing. Um, And I I don't have a set word count. A lot of friends have a target that they'll work to each day. And when they've done that, they'll sort of feel like they're free to go out and their working day is done. Um, I don't do that partly because I don't feel, I think it would make me concentrate on the wrong things, which would be just churning out words. Whereas actually, I think you can have had as good a day writing if you've deleted 500 words of rubbish as if you've written 500 words of brilliant prose, you know, one is more depressing than the other, obviously. But um, I would say I probably end up writing sort of normally about a couple of thousand words a day, but that's not my target. That's just, if I've done it, I feel like I've had a good day's work and I feel happy with myself. Well, so if there is no word count target, what, you kind of touched on this, what dictates at the end of the day that it's been a good one what how do you know that you're happy with what you've done and where you've got to uh, basically if i feel the book is closer to being what i want it to be at the end of the day i feel it's been a good working day and that might mean it's closer to being finished and i've written another chapter and it was a good one and i feel happy with it but it might mean that i've deleted a chunk of work that actually i wasn't happy with and i didn't want to see in the final book so i guess i just want to feel more proud of the book at the end of the day than i did at the beginning and if i do i feel it's a good day uh, you're writing for Simon and Schuster now. So this is a big publisher and because you're you've had the success that you've had, I imagine they are quite keen to get your books out on time for a a baying audience. How um 
if you if you've not got like a target every day, how are you keeping track that you'll hit you, you know submission by the time you're meant to? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I've never well touch wood. I'm going to touch wood very firmly now. I've never missed a deadline. I'm very deadline conscious. Um, I'm the kind of person who, when I was at school, always got my homework in on time, even if that meant me scribbling it on the way to school as I walked. Um, so yeah, there is a certain amount of that. I think it's just, I just gauge it by how panicked I am. And having done this quite a few times now, um, this is my, the one I'm writing at the moment is my eighth crime book, but I also wrote for teenagers before that. Um, I know roughly where I should be in terms of how much plot I've got left to get through, how close I am to the end, how likely I am to hit my target. Um, and I guess, yeah, it is, it's just that thing of, you know, you're doing your homework, you know whether you're going to be able to get it done or not. And you know, there comes a point where you're just going to have to stop procrastinating and get the words down because otherwise you're not going to write that essay. And it's just a larger, longer version of that. So there'll be times of year when I'll be like, oh, God, I've only done 45,000 words. I should be further on by now. You know, you need to crack on. And that concentrates the mind wonderfully. Um, or there'll be times of year when I'll be feeling a bit smug because I've done 60,000 words and actually, you know, I'm only halfway through the year and I feel pretty good about that. So it, it's just that kind of constant balancing act of, of gauging how good I feel about my progress. But it isn't just about the number of words because oftentimes I know that there will be certain scenes that will be difficult to write or that will need a lot of research or will just be knotty in some way, or I suspect they might be. Um, and so I know I have to leave more time for those. Um, so a, a, a lot of it, a, a large part of it is about the word count and where I am with that. But an equally large part is about how much I feel I'm through the book in terms of effort. I sort of think of it a bit like running a marathon. And, and of course, the key part is, you know, how many miles you've done, but also the knowledge that there's a hill coming up is going to play a big part in how you how smug you feel. <laughs> <laughs> On days when perhaps it's not going so well, what tips and tricks have you learned over the last few books to just I, I guess, uncog the wheels that are turning. A, a cup of coffee, maybe a, a piece of music at a certain point. I don't listen to music at all um, while I'm writing, um, which isn't because I don't enjoy music. It's almost because it affects me too much. <laughs> it's sort of, I get earworms really easily. I get tunes in my head that I can't get rid of that then affect the writing. So I just don't go there while I'm writing. It's just easier not to. Um, coffee, obviously, but you know, that's more of a constant than a, than a, a sort of way of tackling um, difficult sections of the plot. Um, I think... A large part of it is just knowing that I've done this before and can do it again. And when I first started out, a writer friend, I can't even remember who it was now, but I was, I'd hit a really difficult point in my book and I was thinking, oh, you know, I'm really stuck. It just, it feels like it's really lagging. And she said, where are you at? How many words are you at? And I said, probably about 30,000 words. And she said, that's always a low point. And it's she's completely right. And since then, it, it happens pretty much like clockwork. Every time I hit 
30,000 words. And it happens for other writers too. And I think it's partly because at that point, you've usually exhausted your sort of initial burst of inspiration. Um, You've written all the easy stuff about the beginning and you suddenly have to sit down and work out what happens next. And often the middle of a book is what makes or breaks the book. But it's also where it can very easily spiral out of your control and just become saggy or you lose your way. Um, So there's that pressure of knowing it's got to be good. But at the same time, you've sort of your initial kind of burst of inspiration has dried up. So 30,000 words is often when it slows down. And somehow just knowing that really helps because you'll you'll get to a point where you're like oh this is the worst book I've ever written you know it's terrible I can't think of what's going to happen next and then you'll think no it's not it's not me this always happens and at that point you just have to force your way through there's no there's no shortcuts it's just about grinding out the words no matter how unpleasant that feels until the inspiration catches up with you and the plot starts to roll again. And sometimes that might mean then going back and deleting some of the words that you ground out because they were going in the wrong direction. But eventually it will come good or it has so far, I hope. Um, But sometimes it's about giving yourself a few days off. Um, And certainly when I was working, I found that my most productive writing days were usually the days immediately after I'd been in the office because obviously my subconscious had been working on the problems and the plot while I was doing something completely different. And so when I came back and sat down at the desk, I had all of this stuff that just I don't know, sprung up overnight and I hadn't even noticed. And certainly that was something I found with the It Girl was it was written hard on the heels of lockdown. So in a year when I would normally have been writing a book, I was homeschooling my kids and my husband's a virologist. So he was working for PHE and working all the hours that God sent and generally not much help, but through no fault of his own. So it very much kind of fell on me. And for the first time, I I didn't write a book, um, which at the time I didn't really feel like I was doing much. But when I did sit down after my kids had gone back to school to write, it just came pouring out. And the it was one of the fastest books I've written since In a Dark, Dark Wood, um, just because it was sort of all there and had obviously been, you know, all these characters had been marinating in my imagination for for a year. Um, so it was sort of it was sort of ready made in a way. Um so I think sometimes knowing that and just knowing that if I take a step back, give my subconscious some time to chew on a problem do something else, do some admin, go for a walk, fill out my tax return. By the time I come back, hopefully there will be a solution ready and waiting. Not always, but hopefully. <laughs> Let me ask you about going full time. I, I don't need any like massively speci- uh, massive specifics here. Um, what like makes that decision? Is is it financial one? Is, is it just because you're spending so much time doing your side hustle that it just makes sense just to kind of crack on as if it was the full-time job? Yeah. I mean, I would say I left it pretty late. Um, And part of that was having worked in the book trade. I had seen how difficult it is to make a long-term career as an author. Um, And that was always what I dream. I've always wanted to be a full-time writer. So it was always my ultimate dream. Um, But you you know, it's a bit like Ian Rankin, someone asked him how, 
you know how 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 do you how do you make a long term career as a writer? And he said, get lucky and stay lucky, and that's the truth. You know, there's so much that's out of your control in this industry. You have to effectively win the writing lottery not just once in order to get published first time, but you have to keep winning it, um, and that's that's a huge challenge for for anybody. So I I did leave it a really long time until um, I was pretty sure that. I could afford to to give up the day job. Um, so at that point, I had I think two books on the New York Times bestseller list um, and a couple of film options in the works. And it the decision was sort of made for me because I was just I was you know exactly as you were saying I was doing so much PR and I was being asked to travel and I was having to turn down so many opportunities because I just couldn't take the time off the day job and eventually you know, my husband and I sat down and did the maths and I was like, this is, this is silly. You know, I'm losing more opportunities because I can't physically fit them into the working week. Um, and I'm, yeah. And at that point it just became a no brainer really. Um, but it was still, it was still a, a scary step to, yeah, to, to sort of try and pay the mortgage and, and all the bills through something as ephemeral as, as writing books. And then when you finally make it, you become full time. I know that some people struggle with suddenly having the complete day at their leisure to do something that they were fitting in around everything else they were doing. You've said that you treat it like a nine to five job. I guess the question is, why do you do that? Like when you do have the opportunity to crack out a thousand words before 11 and then go to the cinema or go for a long walk or go for brunch or whatever it is. Why are you still treating it like this nine to five? Well, part of it is exactly as, as you said, you know, when you, I think I was lucky that I didn't go from full-time day job to zero in one transaction. I had, because I'd had kids, I had already gone part-time just for childcare reasons. So I'd started off working in the office three days a week, then that had gone down to two days a week. Um, and then eventually I gave up those final two days. Um, so by the time I did that, my kids were already at school and I was, um, Oh, well, school and nursery. Um, so I was writing effectively sort of full time three days a week already. So it was a sort of gradual process of whittling it down. But I was very aware that I needed that structure and that my family needed that structure, you know, because the great, I think the great thing, the thing about working from home and particularly working from home in something as all consuming and personal as writing novels is that it does take over your life. You know, if you, or if I anyway, allowed myself to be writing at 11 o'clock at night, to be dreaming those characters, to be on some level, that's what you want. And obviously you're thinking about your characters all the time, but it can very easily send you a bit nuts in a way. So I think for me, it's really important to to create structure, even if it's an artificial structure that I have imposed on myself and to create boundaries. And I really enjoy the fact that at three o'clock, I close my office door. My The book I'm writing is on the computer in my office, so I can't fiddle on it on my laptop. Um, the working day is done and I can give myself to my family and 
that's really important for them, but it's also really important for me to be able to sort of shut off. Um, because I think, you know, it's something that everybody has experienced over COVID is that when you're working from home, you can find yourself working just 24 hours a day apart from when you're asleep. You know, you're answering emails in your dressing gown, you're tapping out replies from your bath. And actually, I don't think that's a super healthy way to be. You know, it feels convenient in the moment because you think, well, I won't have to deal with this tomorrow. And sometimes it's the only way it's possible to work. You know, I know when, you know, when we're all homeschooling and everything, you just couldn't do anything during the day. So, yes, you know, of course, all of us ended up doing our taxes at 11 p.m. or, our, you know, our emails at five in the morning because it was the only way to get the job done. Um, but I have the luxury of being able now to to create that structure and those boundaries, and I think it's good good for me, good for my imagination. <laughs> um, how much did your view of writing change then? I, I mean, before going full time, you were doing it. You know, I don't want to say as a hobby, but it it was not your main gig. It was kind of a, a dream that you'd had for a lot of time, but then suddenly it becomes your main income stream. And as you say, you've got to pay the taxes, you've got to pay the mortgage with it. How much did your view of what writing was alter in that switch? Did it become, and did you become more serious with it? It's a very good question. Um, I think there was a massive switch when I did get published, just because it, it really did go from being a hobby into being a profession. Um and of course, I took writing seriously before I got published. You know, I was very aware that I was trying to produce something of a professional standard that, you know, I would be proud of when it went out into the world. But there is a very definite difference between writing because you want to and because it's your dream versus writing because you've signed a legal contract promising to deliver this book and in theory, you will have to pay back the advance if you don't do that. And that having that knowledge in the back of your head definitely changed for me the way I felt about my writing. Um, it just becomes becomes a professional obligation, really, apart, you know, rather than something I do just because I love it. And obviously I do love it. And I'm incredibly happy to, you know, to, to be able to do that. But I, I always smile a bit, you know, there's that cliche of um if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And actually, that's not true. I don't think there's lots, you know, we all love our jobs, or many of us are lucky enough to, do, to, to love our jobs. But that doesn't mean that we're not working hard, and we shouldn't value what we do as work. And I think to pretend that's not the case is a, is a little bit dangerous. Um, so yes, first and foremost thing was was just that switch from knowing that I was doing it for fun, to knowing that I was doing this as a professional obligation as a professional person who had undertaken a contract. Um, so I do keep that in mind very much. I am a I am a business person, you know, I have a professional reputation that I need to maintain. Writing is on some level a kind of really creative thing that it's really hard to pin down. But on another level, I'm a professional providing a service which I'm charging money for. Um, so I think it's really helpful to keep both of those things in mind. Um, whether it switched so much when I went full time, I don't honestly know. I think in a way by that point, certainly 
in a dark, dark wood in cabin 10 had been so successful that in some ways they'd taken the financial pressure off. So I actually felt less stressed about money when I was sort of trying to balance a not frightfully well-paid day job with um, writing books, which was sort of, you know, the money comes in chunks. It's very unpredictable. You never know what your next book is going to be worth. That felt much more financially precarious and much more financially stressful. Um, So once I'd had a couple of really big successes, particularly in America where, you know, obviously the market's so much bigger. Um, in a way, I almost felt less under pressure financially. So it was this sort of weird situation where, yes, I'd gone full time. Yes, I was now trying to pay the mortgage solely off writing well, and off my husband's salary, obviously. I don't want to make it sound like he doesn't contribute. Um, at the same time, we were also in a financially more comfortable situation. So I was in some ways panicking less, but yeah, it's a weird, it is a weird thing to, to, to try to make money off a creative pursuit. There's always a bit of a left brain, right brain thing going on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We are back with more from Ruth Ware in just a sec, talking about her new novel, The It Girl. If you're enjoying the show, if you've enjoyed anything along the way, anything that has helped the way that you write, if it's changed the way that you plan your day and your space, uh, you can help the show out for helping you out, I guess. It's patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Just a couple of dollars a month makes you a backer. It gets you our eternal thanks, gets you merch gets you bonus content there is even a way for your book to sponsor the show and most of all it gets you into this writing community it lets you know that you are helping us out that you are helping for us to keep bringing you these chats as often as we can well as often as i can really i say we because that's the form but it's a one-man gig here and i could use all the help i can get to help me devote the time to bring you these episodes every week with the best authors around to help me do that Become a backer, support, pledge to help the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. 
Let's get back to it then with Ruth Ware talking about her new novel, The It Girl. It's all about Hannah, who 10 years after her friend's death is given new information that changes everything she believed about what actually happened. We talk about the clashes between her different editors, how she chooses between them. Also, why keeping the character voices between stories different from each other, notably different, actually helps her revisit and then edit as years go by. And we pick things up talking about the switch from teen fiction to adult novels. She started in well, pretty much YA. Now she's writing crime novels. How much did she think about changing the tone when she was moving older? I don't think there is that much of a difference. I never consciously sat down to write differently for adults than for teenagers. Um, The reason I made the switch was really because the book, I was sitting down trying to figure out the book that I wanted to write next. And I had this conversation with a friend where she was saying that she'd never read a thriller set on a hen night. And I immediately knew that I wanted to write this book. But obviously, there was no way that this book could ever be for teenagers. You know, there's no plausible plot reason why a teenage, a group of teenagers would be on a hen night. It just doesn't happen. So I immediately knew that it was going to have to be a book for adults. Um, But writing it, I can't say there was really any difference. The only real change was that I felt able to swear more. Um, And I I do swear a fair bit. I'm not like completely potty mouth. But, you know, if you're out on a night out, you know, I I swore a fair bit as a teenager as well. But there's a a limit to what you can put in a a book for for 13 year olds and still get it onto the shelves of, of libraries, um, which I was conscious of. Um, So that felt like a freedom to be able to be, I guess, more realistically representative of how people I know actually talk. Um, The main difference I would say was when it came to the editing was my experience of being edited for teenagers had always been that the focus was on cuts because you need to keep the plot moving Books for teens are typically a little bit shorter. They're usually about 80,000 words. Um, So the focus is always on keeping it page turning and tight and keeping the action moving and not giving anybody time to get bored and switch on their phones, which is, you know, you're obviously competing for attention quite uh, quite aggressively with teenagers. Um, With being edited by editors who were editing for an adult audience, the focus shifted to expanding. So it was always, the comments were always much more about, you know, dig deeper into this scene, give us more of how this person feels, give us richer description, all of which was stuff that I'd sort of slightly held back on um, when writing for teenagers, because you're sort of quite aware that you can't have long self-indulgent descriptions or, you know, inner monologues. Um, And so that was was a joy being able to kind of, you know, go a bit deeper into the characters. And, uh, but it's not really something that I, I probably have changed my style subconsciously as I'm as I went on um just because you're always responding to what your editor said about your last book and so you bear that in mind when you when you write um but no I I I don't really ever sit down and think oh I can use this long word because I'm writing for adults and actually I have a surprising number of teenagers who read my adult books um and who write, often write to me and say, you know, this is the first grown-up book that I've read. Um, so maybe, maybe that's why that my style works for them. I don't know. 
Uh, talking about editing there, it sounds as if you are not j- just like vomit drafting the first draft and then coming back to it at a much later date, that you're refining it as you go? Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't do multiple drafts. I write pretty clean. So usually what, when I get to the end, that's 99% what gets handed into my editor, um, which isn't to say that I get every single sentence right first time, but I sort of whittle it and tweak it and change it as I go. Um, and I'll sometimes go back and kind of seed things in, but not in the sense of doing a, a new draft, just, um, you know, I'll realise that there's some aspect of some character that I need to bring out more strongly in an earlier chapter or whatever. So I'll go back and just tweak one or two scenes and interactions just to sort of bring that out. So it's a kind of, I guess it's a kind of constant process of tweaking and polishing as I go. Um, and usually when I, when I write the end, that's it. I'm pretty much done. There'll occasionally be a few things that I'll need to go back and slightly tweak or change um if they're bigger i i sometimes hand it into my editors saying one thing that i would like to bring out in the next draft is x because i i want if if it's a large change i often want their opinion on whether it's worth doing because sometimes they disagree with my views um but no i would say yeah i don't i don't i'm not someone who does a vomit first draft exactly as you say i i I have to feel happy with the chapter before i move on to the next one which inevitably means quite a lot of going over the same ground um and then i have two editors um one in the states and one in the uk so that's always an interesting process of back and forth um between the two sets of editors giving me two sets of feedback they're usually pretty complimentary because i think they talk about it beforehand (laughs) and kind of agree on their big big points um but sometimes it's interesting because sometimes they do have different views on things and then it can be a bit of a tug of love situation sometimes where you feel like you're choosing one view um but sometimes it can be very useful you can say you know oh well i would love to do this but i think x thinks that and yeah so it's a it's a, a process of collaboratively making the book better at the end of the day. And that's usually, I would say that's normally I get one round of kind of really quite big structural stuff, you know, things that need to move or big strands that need to be seeded in. And then one or two more rounds of more kind of bitty sort of line editing stuff where it's more about the language and little tweaks and things like that. Are you ready for maybe the naffest question you'll ever be asked? <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it's the naffest question. I mean, that well, would be quite a high bar. Is it well, going to be well, where do you get your inspiration? <laughs> no, it's not. But it's a variation of the theme. So let's just crack on with it. Okay. Now, you're not writing uh, like a character serial. You know, it's not like you're writing Rebus where you know really what's happening because every time Rebus has got to investigate a new case. However, you're quite successful now and you're writing within a genre. So you know what your readers want. You know the kind of perimeters and boundaries that you need to work within. How hard do you find it getting new ideas to write a Ruth Ware story with? Yeah. (laughs) I mean... So it is very difficult. And I every time I sit down and start a new book, I always curse myself for writing standalones and feel very resentful of the fact that I have to 
basically reinvent the wheel each time with a completely new set of characters, a completely new world, new narrator, new problem, new murder, new point of view. Um, and I, you know, I often wish that I had the structure of a familiar character who I could return to and a familiar world that I could wheel out. Um, the thing is, I guess there are advantages to both because it does mean that I've been able to switch things up in my books in a way that if I were writing series characters, I think I would have difficulty doing. So structurally, all of my books are very different. Some of them are very traditional, you know, third person, past narrative, numbered chapters. Some of them are much more stream of consciousness. The Turn of the Key is an epistolary novel, so it's completely told in the form of letters. Um, some of them are much more patchworky in terms of bits of narrative, bits of newspaper articles, blog posts. Um, so, yeah, it does mean that I have complete freedom to suit the format of the narrative to, to what I'm writing and to keep switching it up, which means I never have to feel bored. Um, and I would say that's something I do fairly deliberately, actually. It, I've never written two books back to back in the same style in terms of, you know, there's always some switch in terms of the whether it's first person, whether it's dual narrative, whether it's yeah, epistolary, well, you know, whatever it is, I I try to keep it fresh each time. So that is the great joy of writing standalones. Um but I, I in some ways I would love to write a series character, but I think the problem that I have is that I'm not someone who's well suited to writing procedurals. I have no background in law or policing. I don't know very much about that world. Um, and it's not a genre I read hugely much. Um, so I think I would find it really difficult to, to create a police officer or a lawyer character um, convincingly, particularly when there are other writers out there who do it so brilliantly. You know, there's people like Steve Kavanagh or Imran Mahmood who are writing brilliant lawyers and have that legal background. Or, you know, people like Claire McIntosh who used to work as a cop. So she, you know, she just got a level of insight into that world that it would take me years to achieve. And probably at the end of it, my portrayal wouldn't be as convincing as hers. Um, but the difficulty is, of course, if you're not using someone with that kind of professional involvement, it's very difficult these days to come up with reasons why someone would be serially involved with lots of crime, short of them being, you know, Dexter style, a serial killer. Um, you know, the days of when Ms. Marple could just rock up to crime scenes and start poking around with her knitting needles are gone. I don't think many readers would accept that as, you know, as outside of the cosy genre, maybe, which I don't really write. But, you know, in a world where you can have cat detectives, fair enough, anything goes. But I don't think I could write Midsummer Murders or Murder, She Wrote and pull it off convincingly. Ah, um, you're so right, aren't you there? Because I, I was just thinking about the, uh, the, the new avenues into crime writing and why someone is investigating and then when something comes around like i guess you would say richard osman's series about re a retirement community suddenly just, just deciding they're gonna yes which he does pull off but i'm not sure i could have written that book so <laughs> it's staggering isn't it it really is um uh, well like uh, you, you were talking about forms there what what comes first with it? So in your constant bid to keep yourself inspired and keep yourself engaged, is it a case of, well, I've written 
this style of book just now. What else can I do? How else can I, f- I freshen up this narrative? Does that come before the general plot of the characters whose stories you're going to tell? Um, no, not usually. Um, sometimes it does. In the case of The Turn of the Key, I've been wanting to write an epistolary novel for years. Um, but whether that came first, I don't know. It was the idea of that book came from lots of different places. And somehow, because the main character was in prison, which is one of the few places where people still do write letters because they don't have access to the internet, it felt like a novel where I could finally do that. Um, so they sort of, they just sort of melded together. It was the right novel for the right kind of format. Um, but sometimes it is more, you know, sometimes it is more calculating. Um, one by one, I've always done uh, straightforward first-person narrators. Um, and one by one, that's what I did. I wrote it in a, not first-person necessarily, but I've done usually a single point-of-view narrator. Um, and I did the same with one by one and then got about a third of the way through and realised that um, I needed a second narrator because I'd picked the wrong point-of-view to tell the story. And I couldn't let go of the person who I was who I'd written 30,000 words in, um, but she couldn't tell me everything that I needed to know. So I had to go back, ditch half of what I'd written and reseed in a second narrator, which I'd never done before. Uh, so that was sort of more the book forced the format on me. And I was at the time really pissed off because I, I very rarely have to ditch that much. Um, and that felt very painful, <laughs> but you know, it was what the book needed. But other times, yeah, you know, it's, um, I end up when I wrote um, the death of Mrs. Westerway. I'd written three books in the first person, and I thought I want to write a book in third person, you know. And because of that, I think you know, third person past is quite a a traditional um, sort of classic way of telling a story, really. And because of that, I think the book itself came out very traditional and classic, and it's got you know lots of. Um, echoes of people like you know Daphne du Maurier and Agatha Christie to an extent it, it's probably it feels like my most old-fashioned book in terms of setting as well as as style so all of those things kind of weave together I think it's impossible to separate them out and say which one came first and which one you know came after um, they sort of complement each other I'm often editing one book while I'm beginning the next one just because of the pressures of deadline so actually keeping those two voices distinct in my head becomes really important um but I guess a lot of it is just about getting to know them as a person getting to figure out what makes them tick thinking about them carefully before you start writing the book you know in the book that I'm writing at the moment the main character is such a different character to Hannah. They're just completely different personalities, very different motivations, very different just way of viewing the world. And that's not something I have to force. Like I know that they're different just as I know that, you know, two of my friends are not the same people kind of thing. Um, I think there is a danger if you're writing very similar um, narrators back to back they do kind of bleed into each other and 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 that's something I've always tried to not to avoid exactly but it's something yeah I've always been quite conscious of and you know maybe the fact that my two narrators for the last two books are very different was on some level deliberate um yeah (laughs) 
Uh, so the new book is The It Girl. Uh, tell us about the first moment that the idea for this story came into your head. Uh, what was the light bulb moment that led to it? Well, so I've been asked this in a couple of interviews and the truth is I don't remember, probably because it was over lockdown. So uh, everything is such a blur that, um, yeah, it's just it's really impossible for me to remember where that kind of first seed came from. Um, but I think most of my books are rooted in some sort of fear or phobia or, you know, a horrible what if that makes you wake up in the middle of the night feeling chills. Um, and I think the core of this book, which is the idea that my, so my main character, Hannah, um, her roommate, April was murdered when they were at college together. Um, And the college porter was convicted largely on Hannah's evidence. And then 10 years later in the present day, he's died in prison. Um, And it should be this moment of release for Hannah because she's, you know, he's gone. She's pregnant with her college sweetheart, Will. It should be this moment of like being able to face the future. But actually what happens is she starts to think about the past and to realize that she may have made a mistake um, when she gave her evidence. She reported what she saw and believed and thought truthfully, but she starts to become aware that she may have not had the whole picture herself and have may have sort of unintentionally uh, misled the jury. Um, and at that point, she becomes completely obsessed with finding out the truth, um, partly because she needs to know whether an innocent man died in prison, um, but partly because if he wasn't guilty, it probably means that one of her university friends must have been involved in the murder. Um and I suppose I think the, the probably the first root of that was um, I did jury service a number of years ago, um, and the, the case was nothing like the one in the book. It was much um, much less serious, thankfully. But I was really surprised by the weight of responsibility that I felt, and I could tell the other jurors were feeling it too. You know, everybody took it really seriously. They were really principled. They really tried to do their best by everybody involved. You know, defendants and the people who had. Um, who were the victims of the crime. Um, And I, yeah, I was like, I had sleepless nights over it and, you know, felt a real pressure to, to, to get things right and to evaluate things in the right way. And I suppose as a writer, you, you take your own experiences, but then kind of magnify them to the nth degree. And, And the nth degree for me in that situation would be not just me doing my best to evaluate the evidence in front of me, responsibly and without prejudice, but to be the person who had given evidence that had resulted in a conviction and then to realise that maybe your own preconceptions and prejudices had got in the way of finding out the truth. And that is something that I don't think I could live with. And it's certainly not something my main character can easily live with. Um, so I suppose that that's the kind of, that's the seed of it. But it definitely, as I was sitting in the in the jury room deliberating, it definitely, you know, I wasn't coming up with plots over it. it it's only years later that I think that's probably where that seed first got sown. So if, if you think that, and I know that you can't quite remember, so this might be quite tricky. But generally, <laughs> as a writer, what comes next? So you've got that very initial idea, that, that seed. Now, you're not that much of a plotter. What do you need to do to that kernel before you sit there and start typing your first sentence? 
it's just so uh, yeah i mean every single book is is different and if i had a surefire a kind of sequence of events it would make me feel much better every time i sat down and the the truth is i I don't know. Sometimes the setting comes first. Sometimes the character comes first. Sometimes the the premise comes first. Every book is different. In this one, I think obviously that kind of that what if, what if you had given evidence in a trial that you later turned out to have doubts about, that was the kind of core. Um, and then I suppose I started to think about what kind of person would be most um, most tormented by this. And, you know, Hannah is, she's a very, um, she's a very principled person. She's a very reliable person. She's someone who really just tries to do their best in all situations. So she's the kind of person who would find it hardest to, to live with all of that. Um, and then from there, yeah, I guess you start to think about, I knew that I wanted it to be about class and privilege and prejudice um, and the kind of people who get believed in any situation versus the kind of people who don't. Um, And so I suppose setting it at Oxford was part of that conversation. It's it's a, a place where inequalities really rub up against each other in very sort of interesting ways. You know, there are people who are incredibly wealthy, have a great sense of entitlement. Um, There's people who are astonished that they were even let into these, you know, gilded halls and are sort of trying to front up their own feelings of inadequacy. Um, There's the dons, there's the college staff, there's all sorts of interesting kind of power um, inequalities and and different sort of types of power um, playing out there. So that, I guess that was why I ended up going with that as a background, but I wouldn't say it was like a con, I didn't sit down and think, where would be an interesting place to set this? It's more when you're running through possibilities, you go for the one that snags. And it's not always easy to tell at the time why that particular one feels right, but that it just did it felt right um to me in the moment so yeah so that's that's probably what came next and then after that it's just a question of getting to know the characters letting them tell you who they are figuring out who their friends are um and pretty early on i knew who did it and why that's always a big thing for me i have to i have to know the i don't really plot in terms of i don't sit down and do chapter outlines and stuff but i almost always have to know the solution to the mystery who did it and usually what their motive was because I think as a mystery writer you have to know that in order to be able to drop those breadcrumbs for the reader Um, and it's very difficult to drop breadcrumbs if you don't know the identity of the killer yourself so yeah And that is it with Ruth Ware in this week's Writer's Routine that book is The It Girl and it is out right now next week on the show we're chatting to barnaby jameson (laughs) you'll like this Uh, i know i did he is one of the uk's leading counter-terrorist qcs Uh, like a lawyer for the queen He's worked on some notorious cases involving assassination and bombing attempts, and he's used that experience for his first novel. It's called Codename Madeline. You can hear all about it, how he worked on it, where he worked on it in between 
being a lawyer uh, next week on the show with Barnaby Jameson. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Get in touch using the contact page at writersroutine.com. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen. And you can follow us at Writers Pod over on Twitter. And I will see you next week with Barnaby Jameson on the show. Until then, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.